Hi everyone, I'm your host NG, and welcome to the 37th episode of the podcast, Sounds About Right, audiobooks to help us understand the world. On this episode, I was joined by Augustine Fuentes, author of the book Race, Monogamy and Other Lies They Told You, Busting Myths About Human Nature. There are three major myths of human nature. Humans are divided into biological races, humans are naturally aggressive, and men and women are wholly different in behaviour, desires and wiring. Race, monogamy and other lies they told you counters these pervasive and pernicious myths about human nature as Augustine tackles misconceptions about what race, aggression and sex really means for humans and incorporates an accessible understanding of culture, genetics and evolution that requires us to dispose of notions of nature or nurture. Presenting scientific evidence from diverse fields including anthropology, biology and psychology Fuentes devises a myth-busting toolkit to dismantle persistent fallacies about the validity of biological races, the innateness of human aggression and violence, and the nature of monogamy, sex, and gender. It was great discussing the book with him, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. say in one of the earlier chapters that this book focuses on challenging what many mistake for common knowledge and what it means to be human. Why is busting myths about human nature something that requires so much effort? Well, because the myths are powerful, right? So the myths I talk about, about race, about sex, about aggression, they're sort of baked into a lot of contemporary society, particularly in the Americas, in the UK, in Europe. And people have this assumption about the way the world is. And so if you want to sort of push that, break that open a little bit, it takes a lot of work because we know how men and women are. We know what races are and what the deal is. We know that men are naturally aggressive, right? And so knowledge is powerfully stuck in our heads. And you got to sort of, when it's wrong, you got to break it a little bit to shake stuff up. And is it possible to list what are the things that have led to the myths of human nature? And why are these myths so resilient? Well, I mean, they're pretty, uh, it's a long, complicated story. That's why it's a whole book. But so, I mean, the punchline is, look, okay, all reproducing organisms, right? Organisms that reproduce by sex have complexities around them. In humans, we have this thing we call man and woman, which is not exactly the same as male and female. And we have this really complex thing called sex gender, where culture and biology and history and economics and politics get all mixed together. So human sex stuff is really complicated. And yet, most people think it's pretty easy as male or female, man or woman, A or B, right, from Mars or from Venus. And that's just not the case. And the data show that it's much more complicated and interesting. So that's the first one. The second one is about race, which is really about racism, right? I mean, a lot of the contemporary sort of Euro-American world is centered on these racialized classifications of people that result in, in inequity in politics and economics and health that have deep histories, but people think that there's a biological basis to racism and race, and there isn't. But unpacking that, it's, it takes a lot of work. And, and the final one, this idea of aggression. I mean, we all have this sort of Hobbesian notion, or not maybe not all, but most people have this idea that if you strip away the veneer of culture and society, humans, especially men, are just violent, you know, at the heart of it. And it turns out even that story is a little bit more complicated. And why is science the best way to test for knowledge and explanations? I mean, 
I think there's great arguments for other ways of knowing as well. I just happen to be a scientist and love the scientific method and love the history of doing science, right? I'm really interested in humans, right? And everything related to us and near us, but I'm interested in how we are mediated by our bodies, mediated by our evolutionary histories. So for that question, like, what do our bodies tell us about why we are the way we are? What do our bodies tell us about societies, about actions, about behavior? You need to have some scientific engagement to really do the kind of work that I want to do. So science is not the only way to know stuff, but it's a pretty darn good way. And I feel as though when it comes to some myths, which I hope to discuss a little bit further with you, there is a belief that us as humans are just the way we are. And that's a phrase that's used to answer many questions about us. Why is this too simplistic of a view, Augustine? Oh, man, you hit the nail on the head. Like people are like, oh, well, you know, boys will be boys. Like, wait a minute. What does that mean? You know, you say that after a whole bunch of different kinds of things. What do you actually mean by that? Or people say, well, you know, that's just the way it is. Inequity happens, right? Or certain folks are better at playing football than others. Or certain people should be the heads of nations and other people shouldn't. People accept stuff way too easily because of these histories and these politics structuring the way we see the world, right? It's not by accident that the world is the way it is. People have worked hard to create these systems. And many of these systems are unjust and inequitable. And using science, using understanding of human bodies and histories and cultures, we can actually push against some of this injustice and inequity and say, look, none of this has to be this way. Many things are here right now, but just because something is here right now the way it is, doesn't mean that's the way it should be or has to be. Absolutely. And a phrase that you said in the book, which actually stuck out to me, was how our perspectives affects our perception on a daily basis. And I wanted to ask, how would you say that affects culture as well and just how people go about with their daily lives, essentially? That for me is that that's the billion dollar question. I used to say million dollars, but you know, with, with inflation, it's not a billion dollar <laughs> question. So the billion dollar question, actually my last book, the book before this new audio and revised version of Race, Mogging and Otherwise, my last book was called Why We Believe, where I tackle that exact question, you know, why, why do we believe these things? Why do humans do this? So it's a much longer story, but in a nutshell, right? Being human means swimming in a culture. We're born into a world and we absorb that world. We have the capacity to do that. And what we absorb, people always say, you are what you eat. Well, really it's, you are who you meet, right? Who you're around, who you hang out with, who you grew up with, who you play with that structures what the world looks like to you, right? So what we believe, what we think about the world, generally it's real for us because we really believe it. That's what belief is, right? this ability humans have to just commit wholly and fully to ideas and ideologies. However, not all beliefs are accurate or valid. <laughs> and it turns out sometimes we need to check ourselves and ask, okay, why do I believe this? What am I basing this on? And that, that's our superpower, right? Not only that we can believe, but that we can challenge beliefs and modify them. Augustine, I also want to touch on some of the myths that you do bust within the book, most specifically genetic determinism. What is this and what is the common belief that's around it? So many people today think you can spit in a tube, 
and pay, what is it? I don't know, 35 quid or 50 quid or whatever, and send it in and they'll tell you who you are. I guarantee you the DNA extracted from your saliva cannot tell you who you are. It can tell you some interesting things about ancestries and connections and your potential body and health, but it cannot tell you who you are. This idea that the DNA, the gene, is what determines the human, that's just BS. It is not correct. And all the geneticists know that. But for some reason, and medicine is part of this, and sort of popular understandings of science is part of this, and some scientists have made stupid remarks about what genes are and aren't. Because of all this, and because it's easy, people love to say, you know what? It's the genes. It's in my genes. So yeah, it's a lot more complicated. Genes are important. DNA is really important, but it is not the final end of day statement about who we are. There was a part in the book when you was discussing this and you mentioned Ancestry.com and it made me look at that website very, very (laughs) differently now, especially when I think of it. There are many like Americans that I know of and even people that were from like Brazil that would say that they've done those tests and it's come back there 70% Nigerian or something. I'm I'm looking at that a lot more differently than I did prior to now. Well, I mean, that's my favorite example is that those ancestry tests are all based on you spit in a tube, they pull out your DNA. Then these companies have a database, right, of different populations, different samples from around the world. And they're pretty small. They're getting better and bigger. But what's really funny, and I point this out in the book, that early on in the ancestry testing, all of sub-Saharan Africa was very underrepresented. And so basically they had populations from Lagos and Nigeria. And so everyone who uh, has any connection in any way, shape or form to the massive range of populations across Africa, like, oh, you're part Nigerian. <laughs> and that is just much more complicated than that. So I think that the bottom line with ancestry tests is if you do them intelligently, if you understand what they're telling you and what they're not telling you, it, they're fun and fascinating, but they don't tell you who you are. They don't actually even always tell you about ancestry, which is a pretty complicated thing. Mm. That's true. So how are genes important for us understanding humanity, Augustine? I think there's three simple things, not simple, three basic things about uh, understanding genetics. All life shares DNA or RNA. RNA is the single standard. That's too complicated. But let's just say, you know, almost everything living shares DNA. And in fact, DNA is the sort of basic molecule of much organic life. Because of that, understanding how DNA works in our bodies and other animals' bodies and plants' bodies and things like that helps us understand the the basic biology. Like, how does biology work? DNA never does anything by itself. That's number two. We know that DNA, if you just throw it on the table, nothing, nothing happens, right? DNA is always part of this really complex, amazing organic process. So DNA is very important. DNA never does anything by itself. And the third thing is DNA provides information for a whole bunch of other things, right? Building on number two to do stuff. But it isn't the only information that is passed from body to body, passed from generation to generation. And it's not even the only or most important bit of biological information in our bodies every day. So it's important, right? It it structures a lot but it isn't the only thing and it never does anything by itself. So it's stupid, and I use that phrase importantly, to say the DNA period, because there's no such thing as the DNA period. It's always part of a much larger process. Mm -hmm. So, and what are some of the things you don't mind sharing in terms of diminishing the myths of DNA? Here's a really important one. 
most people, let's go back to these ancestry tests, like, oh my God, look, I'm 30% Viking and 20% Nigerian and 40% what have you. Okay, first off, here's the most important thing. Every single human being on the planet is 99.9% identical for every single chemical part of the DNA. So it's 0.1% that varies. Not, not that that isn't important, right? I mean, we share 96, 97% of our DNA with a chimpanzee. So that 0.1%, that's a lot of variation. But I think the bottom line should start with the similarity, not the difference. So when you spit in a tube and pay a bunch of money for 23andMe or Ancestry.com and they send you back your reports, the first line on that report should be, congratulations, you are 99.9% the same as every other living human on the planet. Now, let's take this 0.1% and see where it goes. That's, for me, if we started at that point, humans would make a lot more sense. What I also wanted to touch on, Augustine, is that I think you did a brilliant job in tackling the myth of race in the book. Where does the perception of racial differences come from? Oh, man, do you have three years to sort of talk about? I, I mean, it's a loaded question, isn't it? <laughs> no, but it's a good question. I mean, in the UK and the USA are two places where this has to be talked about every day, all the time. And that is there are historical political and economic realities that have structured our societies in ways that pull apart people based on their histories, their skin color, their languages, their cultures, and assign them different ranks in society and structure, racialize society in ways so that people see and believe things about other people that are wrong. Humans vary on all sorts of things, and that's wonderful, but biological variation actually doesn't map to our racial categories. Our racial categories are social constructs, they're political, economic, historical realities. So those two things are really important because if biology doesn't get us race, which it doesn't, and we see inequity and injustice between races in a society, racism, right? Then we need to explain that socially and historically and politically. You can't say, oh, well, that's just the way it is. So, as you said, we can't be divided into biological subcategories. However, what could be used to describe genome variations in humans? Because a man from Congo and a man from Scotland standing next to each other may buy into the myth that they are completely different, despite our DNA being 99% the same, as you said. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's great. But let me also point out that when you just said that, you meant a black man from Congo and a white man from Scotland, right? Because there are white men in Congo and white men in Scotland, right? Very true. So what you're talking about is specific ancestries. So people who have deep roots in a particular place. But let's take that example. So if you took this sort of white guy from Scotland with deep roots in the sort of British Isles, that in Scotland, that region, and then you took someone with deep roots, let's say, in central Congo, and you compared their genetics, you would be able to tell them apart. There would be certain characteristics or patterns. Now, you could also then take that individual from with deep roots in the Congo and an individual with deep roots in Nigeria and an individual with deep roots in South Africa who are both sort of deeply historically connected to those places. And they could be more different genetically than the guy from the Congo and the guy from Scotland. So here's the punchline, right? You think you know what genetics looks like in the distribution? No, you don't. Because in fact, sub-Saharan Africa has more genetic diversity than the rest of the world combined. And that's because humans have been longer in that part of the world. And so when we think of differences, a black guy from Congo and a white guy from Scotland, 
we think we're talking about biological and these all these specific differences, but we're totally assuming we know what that biological distribution looks like. And it doesn't look that way. There's no such thing as African DNA versus European DNA versus Asian DNA. There are patterns and processes of DNA movement across the, the board, but they don't cluster continentally. And that, that's really important, right? Africa, Asia, and Europe are not biological units. I think you helped bring this home by in the audiobook, adding in the accompanying PDF, the picture of you and the children from Papua New Guinea. Like that honestly was like, wow, anybody would look at those children and think they're African because of the color of their skin, which could not be more further from the truth. Well, but that's because we don't know what, like how many of us, you know, I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky. I've traveled almost every continent. I haven't been to Antarctica, but I've traveled across the planet, right? In many, many different places and contexts and seen people. Most people don't have that luxury. So most people have no idea what people look like. We just know what people look like around us. So we look around and we're like, huh, okay, well, there's black and white and Asian or this other group, or, you know, I can sort of tell the South Asian here, or this, what have you. So we think we know what the world looks like, but we don't. So for example, people use skin color all the time, right? Like dark skin. Oh, dark skin are people from X. Okay, dark skin is the standard for the world, right? That more humans have what would we call dark skin than light skin, which is also not what folks in the UK and the USA like to present. But also, dark skin is distributed not by continent, not by country, but in fact by ancestry relative to the equator. Sort of, and light skin is found in populations that are, have long, long ancestries in the very far north. So, skin color doesn't work. Hair type, right? You know, whether your uh, hair is sort of dark or light, or whether it's tight and frizzy or long and straight, those patterns show up around the planet, not in specific association with black, white, Asian, what have you. So it's actually so fascinating. And, and let me just give a shout out here to one of my colleagues, Tina Lasisi, who has done some amazing work on hair, because that's one of the areas where everyone thinks they know, uh, but they don't. And this is really cool. And so I know I'm going on here, but it's so exciting when you actually see what the world looks like and what the variation looks like, because then you just want to show everyone. You're like, hey, no, 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 you don't get it. Look around. I like to use the example of London, right? If people living in London took their days seriously and looked around them on a daily basis, they'd be like, oh, wait a minute. Okay, there is a lot of variation going on here. And it's not matching these simple patterns, even though British society, for example, has these sort of black, white, you know, these different color Asian coloration frames. Like next time you're wandering around central London, just stare a little while. You will refute your own hypothesis. Something that is often downplayed is human demography and the influence migration has on evolution. I think that you tied this in well when tackling the myth of sickle cell disease, which is often associated with people of Western African descent. Do you mind just elaborating on this a little bit? Yeah, so there's two things going on here. One is the idea of sickle cell disease and its association with people of West African descent. Or in general, to be honest, most people don't even do that specifically. They're like, oh, well, Africans have sickle cell right? And everyone else doesn't. Okay, well, that's totally wrong. It turns out some populations in West Africa and a few other places in Sub-Saharan and North Africa have higher frequencies of the genetic basis for sickle cell. But so do people in the Arabian Peninsula. So do people in South Asia. So do people actually in Southern parts of Europe. 
So there's like 17 or 18 different versions of sort of sickle cell thalassemia types of things. It has to do with environment and changes. The bottom line is that the diseases that cause sickling of the cell actually show up in a lot of places on the planet, right? In deep time. So a lot of different populations have them. But I think what you said about migration is really important because over the last, let's say, especially 500 years or so, there's been a lot of movement, horrendous forced movement, intentional movement, complex movement, and thing like today where we have these incredible migrations of people because of horrendous political, economic, and social context. So humans move around, and we've been doing this for hundreds of thousands of years. And so when we understand what diseases are out there, what do people look like, it is just as important to study the body as it is to study what peoples are here, how have they been moving, what's been going on. And so today, you find sickle cell around the world because of movements, because it's evolved in different places, and because of medical engagement. And so anytime anyone tells you something simple as an explanation for why humans are the way they are, they're wrong. And just going back to how humans, we can't be divided into biological subcategories. However, how does the perception of race affect biology, Augustine? That's a huge impact and a really good question. And when this updated version of the book, right, especially in the audiobook, you can see I'm really trying to say, okay, look, okay, race is not biological, but racism, the perceptions of race and inequality and the real inequalities that are associated with racism, that shapes our bodies, right? And that's what happens. So racism, injustice, lack of access to healthcare, different kinds of educational contexts, living in particular kinds of environments or under economic conditions of inequity, that actually shapes your body. We know that. What you eat, what access to health you have. There's all these serious studies here in the United States that show just being a person of color, right? Being black or brown in the United States, you're physiological structure in some parts of the country are different than in others because of policing, because of the kinds of social stresses. So race is real. It's, it's just not from biology, but it has biological outcomes because of racism. If anyone gets anything out of the book, if they get that and they can understand that and recognize it and see it around them, that's a win for me. So another part of a book I wanted to touch on is another myth that you discuss, which is the belief of aggression being a part of human nature. How is this something that is context dependent and not a trait that is within our genes as many assume? Yeah. So it's funny. Most people think there's like a gene for violence or a gene for aggression, right? And I go over some of the ones that have been proposed to, to refute them. But even if people don't think there's a gene for violence, they think, well, but that's what people do. Like when people get frustrated, they get violent. Actually, that's not true. That's for some people. And culturally, that's uh, assumed in some places and re rejected in others. So I think what's really interesting is to break this down. When we talk about aggression or violence, there's a whole bunch of different kinds. We're not talking about one thing, right? Is it the same if you punch someone or you're aggressive to someone after they attacked you as if you did the attacking? Or is that exactly the same? Or for example, when you attack a mom with her infant, is that aggression that she's displaying the same as a different kind of fight? Are fights between people living together and raising children together the same as fights between strangers? Actually, all of these things use some of the same parts of our biology, but cognitively, right, in our minds, psychologically, they're very different in many ways. And so to talk about violence or aggression as one thing is wrong. But I think even more important than that, 
is to note that there is nothing in our evolutionary history that says this is our go-to, that the archaeology and the bodies, the study of our bodies in the past. Yes, humans have spent a long time hitting each other over the head, but it's not what we do most of the time, and it's not actually our first go-to when conflict or problems arise. Most of the time, we try to work it out, and that's actually really important. So can we determine how patterns of aggression forms because I learned from your book that amongst humans organized war is a recent phenomenon. So organized war is recent right that doesn't mean throughout the last couple million years of our history all human ancestors ran holding hands through fields of daisies singing. No of course they didn't but the idea of getting a large group together convincing them that they need to risk their lives to go kill other humans, that's really difficult to do. That's why we have militaries. It's really hard to get people to do this kind of work. You have to sort of reshape their bodies and their minds and their perceptions. So that's, I think, really interesting that it's actually hard to get people to be really good at war and to do war. But I think even more importantly, when we step back and sort of ask yourself, what are the ways in which we deal with conflict or competition or engagement? You find there's this huge range, some of which involve aggression and violence, some of which don't. And so humans are actually fascinating in their ability to do these things. And yet we're always like, oh, well, that's just the way it is. And that's not true. One of the examples I love is that who gets kicked out of the military? Those guys and gals who are just too violent and aggressive and don't follow orders. Absolutely, that's true. Right? To be really good in the military, you have to suppress all your individuality. You have to work together. You have to be willing to die for the person on the right and the left of you. That's care. That's compassion, right? That's togetherness, not aggression and violence. So with that being said, I guess it raises a question whether war and aggression is connected. It kind of brings the answer that in some cases it isn't, because as you said, if you're in a military and you're overly aggressive, you'll get kicked out. You become more of a liability more than anything else, isn't it? Yeah. And so what, what's really amazing is when we think of warfare in the contemporary moment, the vast majority of things we're thinking about have nothing to do with the people fighting it generally. Mm. It's usually a national level, political, economic, religious, what have you, this giant high-level thing run by a small set of people with a bunch of other people doing the fighting who actually didn't even originally participate in it. Now, there's other, you know, there are local wars, there's small skirmishes, there's local conflicts. So there's a whole range of this stuff. But when we say war is part of human nature, what we can really mean is that war is something we are capable of, but it certainly is not something that we have a deep, long history of. So then the question is, well, why do we do it more now? That is what's really interesting to me. Why is there so much war now relative to 10,000 or 20,000 years ago? That's interesting. Lastly, Augustine, there are many other myths that you speak on in the book, which were very interesting. And I do hope that the reader or listener will think deeply about. But what actions can one take to tackle some of these myths and half-truths in the future whenever they do come across them? So I love humans, right? Even though we're messed up in many ways, I love humans and I love our capacity to think and to act. Humans are actually really smart. They're really capable. And so what I ask people to do at the end of the book, and I, I provide a little bit of possibilities on how to do this, is figure stuff out for yourself. There's places to get information. There's people to talk to. There's books to read. Compile stuff. Don't just randomly Google stuff. Do the work and educate yourself because knowledge is power, but only if we use it. And so getting knowledge and figuring out which knowledge is valuable and which knowledge isn't is very difficult today. But we have that capacity. Every single human has this incredible mind. 
and people say this all the time and blow it off, but the mind is a horrible thing to waste. We should all be using it. And the world would be a lot better if we spent more time really thinking about who we are and why we do what we do and less time just accepting it. That was Augustine Fuentes, author of the book, Race, Monogamy, and Other Lies They Told You, Busting Myths About Human Nature, second edition. The book and audiobook is available now, which I do recommend you to pick up and read or to give a listen to. A big thank you to Augustine for coming on the podcast, and thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate the podcast, and check out some of the previous ones if you haven't done already. And until then, I'll catch you on the next.